Now happiness, more than anything else, seems complete without qualification, for we always choose it because of itself, never because of something else. Neil, how are you doing this afternoon? Happy Friday. It is. Friday afternoon recording. Ah, Our favorite time. Our new favorite time. Yeah. (laughs) I think this is a good switch. It's a wonderful time to hang out, drink some tea slash wine, talk about books, end our week on a strong note. Yeah. Although I guess it's Tuesday for you people. Tuesday if you're listening to this. Yeah, but you could you could save it and listen to it on Friday if you want. Yeah. Yeah, just like hit pause right now and then come back on Friday. Or you could listen to it twice. Listen to it twice. That'd be good too. Yeah. <laughs> you get more the second time. Yeah. There's hidden things. There's Easter eggs. Yeah. And actually, if you listen to it backwards, we talk about how to summon the devil. It's great. <laughs> anyway, uh, today's book is <laughs> The Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle. So Aristotle, obviously, one of the most famous, important philosophers in all of history. Yep. You know, he was part of that original trio where, you know, Socrates, Socrates was like the OG, and then he mentored Plato, and Plato mentored Aristotle, and then Aristotle went on to mentor Alexander the Great. Yep. Right, so you've got this four-generation lineage of extremely important, influential people all teaching each other and feeding off of each other's ideas. And Aristotle and Plato really ended up being the most influential for really uh, like till today you still see the influences i mean do you think uh well i guess one question i was going to ask you since you're a philosophy major (laughs) were these philosophers like famous during their own time or did they become more famous later on as i understand it they were famous during their time the original thought leaders yeah because i mean socrates's history is pretty well documented and it was documented by other people not him right by multiple other people yeah because he didn't write he couldn't write yeah Yeah, and Plato was definitely very famous for his school in Athens that he was leading. And then Aristotle, uh, his famous school, the Lyceum, was pretty well known. And obviously, he was mentored Alexander the Great and was involved in all of that. I think they were all pretty big names at the time. Uh, But they've also obviously become much bigger since then. Right. Just because, you know. I think the Romans also respected them a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah. Almost certainly. Well, and they had a pretty big influence on Christian theology too. You see a lot of Plato and Aristotle in Christian morality. Definitely. And I I think later too, like a lot of the later saints, you know, like Aquinas and uh, who's the other big guy? There's another one with Aquinas. But they they cited, I believe, Aristotle in particular a lot. I could see that in while reading this. You could definitely see like there were definitely um, similar themes to Christian thought. Well, and a big part of that is because Aristotle's philosophy that we're going to get into, it fits into this bucket of virtue ethics, yeah, right? Where there is something that it is to be good. Right. It's kind of the opposite of uh, like a nihilistic or postmodernist type of thinking, right? right? Of is that that's the postmodernist thinking, right? Where mm-hmm. it's where you can look at things from any any side, and there's not really a right way to view things or to act. It's like all depends on your circumstances. This takes the opposite approach. This says there is a right way. There's a good and an ideal. There is a proper virtuous way to behave. Yeah. And we need to figure out what that is. Yeah. So the core of the book was pretty interesting. The ideas of the book are pretty interesting. Yeah. Reading the book was not the uh, most interesting in some parts, but then you randomly get to sections which are just like beautiful. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, I mean, the way the book is laid out is kind of interesting because it's broken into chapters and sections. When we read it, originally it wasn't. It was just a long string of text. Uh, And Aristotle kind of starts off by saying, you know, here is what happiness seems to be. Yeah. And now here is how all these other virtues of life relate to it. Because, and we'll get into this more, he essentially says at the beginning that happiness is the, you know, sort of living your best life by acting virtuously. Right. 
And then he goes into, okay, well, how do we act virtuously? And unfortunately, that means, you know, pages and pages of, well, you know, this is a good amount of courage and this is a bad amount of courage and this is a good amount of envy and this is a bad amount of envy. And it's kind of a lot of repetition to figure all that out. And in some ways, though, he was also writing like a lawyer. Yeah. Where he's like very sort of like logically and coherently making his case, but starting with assumptions that you're like, duh. Right. Sometimes right? you're like, did that really need to be said? <laughs> well, and he, he does this thing that Socrates was kind of known for too, which they've been rightly criticized for, which is that they open every argument with a dichotomy. He does do that in this, yeah. Where they say, obviously, some actions are good and some actions are bad. Yep. Therefore, we should seek to figure out the good actions and avoid the bad actions. <laughs> right. And in that case, okay, yeah, that's kind of, you know, a tautology. But there are other cases where he'll say, like there, you know, he'll say something like a friend can only be for three reasons, right? Uh, pleasure, utility, or mutual benefit. And you read that and you go, there are probably other things right. too, right? I, yeah. I see what you're doing. I see where you're going with this, but I think you may have, you know, overly, yeah, overly simplified <laughs> yeah. this. Uh, and so I think he gets rightly criticized for that, but it does lead to a very clear, easy to follow argumentative style. Right. And I think the other thing that gets lost too is that he's writing this in ancient Greek. That's what I was going to say is that the translation probably also makes a big difference here. Right. And this is the one of the big things that doesn't get translated well is that we're going to use the word happiness throughout this discussion, but the original word is like eude and eudaimonia, right? Which better translates to human flourishing. Oh, interesting. Well, I mean, even the word happiness in English is a very like hard to define, hard to understand word, right? Yeah. Because there's like happiness and then there's joy, which might be different things and pleasure. Pleasure is different. Right. Yeah. I have heard there are in other languages, different words that maybe more I don't want to say correctly, but just encompass like a different feeling than what we would refer to happiness as. And this seems like one of them. Yeah, definitely. So when we say happiness, just imagine it more like living the ideal human life, feeling fully fulfilled, right? you know, spiritually and emotionally, not necessarily, you know, oh, that ice cream was delicious, right? right? And now I'm happy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And he actually calls that out later too. There's a whole section on pleasure. Which I think is, and that call out really helped solidify that for me, which is, you know, because we read, at least I was reading the word happiness and you immediately think of like, oh, happiness, like everything's going fine and well and it's easy and things taste good and, you know, like, but that's not what he's talking about here. Yeah. So, yeah. And like we were saying before, there is a lot of this book that is just hammering out those arguments. Yep. And so I was telling Neil that in school, we only read a very small part of the book. And so when I was reading the whole thing, again for this episode i was kind of like oh, okay i see why we didn't read all these other parts just kind of glossed over them and it wasn't even that long of a book no it's not but even with that it's still sometimes feels a little sloggy at yeah. parts <laughs> yeah but i think that book one on happiness book one was pretty good actually really clips and book two on virtue of character three through nine i honestly didn't get that much from were they presented in this order in the original i think so okay so they just added the sections but they yeah. didn't they weren't necessarily out of order it was just this order but just all one all kind of like one long yeah. stream of thought yeah and then book 10 on pleasure i think was very good again yeah so it's really the beginning and end that stand out as kind of the most interesting compelling parts and you can probably just read those and get most of the value of the book that's probably what you guys did in school that is what we did in school yeah, yeah. 
So should we just dive in? Any any other preamble we should throw in here? I'm trying to think if there's any other. One thing that's nice about these old philosophy books is that you get a big long introduction right. explaining a lot of the context for it. And the people and their history. The people, the history, and some general context for the ideas right before you go into it, since the language can be hard to parse it sometimes. But yeah, so he dives right into book one, where he is essentially arguing that if, you know, it's a book of ethics, so we're just figuring out how we should behave. Yep. And his argument essentially comes down to saying that we should behave in a way that leads to, quote unquote, happiness. happiness. Yeah. And to be clear, though, this isn't utilitarian happiness where you're trying to maximize pleasure for everyone. Right. Right. In the Bentham sense or maximize, you know, like higher pleasures. Right. In the mill sense, this is, you know, th- this human flourishing, happiness, successful life. Yeah. Kind of happiness. And he starts off by saying that in order to figure out how to do that, we need to be able to judge what happiness is. Yeah. Right. And be able to judge if something truly leads to that flourishing and that happiness. Well, I also like the hierarchy that he set up. Yeah. Right. Of like the individual, the city. Right. Like, and this is this is one thing where I thought it's like clearly his opinion, right? But he says, uh, I'm going to read this from the book where he says, for even if the good is the same for a city as for an individual, still the good of the city is apparently a greater and more complete good to acquire and preserve. So it's like he, he's creating this hierarchy of like, if it's good for the city, that's more important than an individual's good. Right. But an individual's good is also good for the city. So it's it kind of like you're you can almost start thinking of it as like a pyramid or like an upside down pyramid, I guess, where the individual's at the bottom, but then there's like the higher and higher goods or higher and higher valued happiness tiers effectively. Yeah. Because I'd imagine he would say like a country's good or which they didn't have a concept of a country, but you know what I mean? Yeah. The overall state is bigger than this individual city. When it helps hedge against selfish arguments. Right. Where you could say that, oh, you know, I will get richer if I'm stealing money from people. Exactly. But that doesn't lead to the good uh, or the flourishing of the city. So in an interesting way, I thought this ties together some of the things that Ayn Rand argued in Atlas Shrugged. Okay. About how like money is showing the value, right? Like voluntary exchange. And so um, this kind of like ties the two together, right? Because it's like, well, Ayn Rand's argument, I guess, ties the two together because what she's saying is people who are making a lot of money are making it because they're providing some value. And then so therefore, the people who make the most money are doing the most good for society as well. That's her argument, right? To right. tie this into... Yeah, it was just interesting to see that. Because when I first read that sentence, I was initially thinking like a very anti-individual rights argument, right? More yeah. collective rights. Did, did you think the same thing? or No, I, I was in a similar camp to you that pure egoism or egotism is bad, yeah. but an, an impersonal egoism, right? That everyone should do what will maximize their long-term best self-interest, yeah. right? That is very similar to what Aristotle's saying here. Yeah. And Rand was really heavily influenced by Aristotle. Interesting. Okay. So she mentions that in some of her other books, I think. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay. So you see a lot of elements of Aristotelian virtue ethics in objectivism and kind of vice versa. It's pretty, it'd be pretty easy to take Aristotle's arguments and apply it to an impersonal egoism the same way it would, you'd be able to take it and apply it to Christianity, Hmm. right? Because I think that what we're building towards here is that there is a proper way to behave and to act, right? You want to behave and act in a virtuous way that is societally sustainable and that maximizes your, you know, 
personal success, happiness, flourishing. Yeah. And then it just comes down to who is the judge of what that is. Right. Is it God or is it money? Is it? Yeah. Like game theory, the market, right? Is it, you know, it could be a lot of things. Right. Which is what Aristotle leads with here, where he says that uh, each person judges rightly what he knows and is a good judge about that. Hence, the good judge in a given area is the person educated in that area. And the unqualifiedly good judge is the person educated in every area. And what he's kind of building towards here is this platonic idea of a philosopher king, right? That the leader should be the most educated person. But at the very least, in order to judge if something is good or not, you need to be very well educated in that field. Yeah. Which is, I think, where Christian morality brings in Aristotle is because they say like, well, the church is in charge of morality, which it was, you know, for hundreds of years. So we are the judges, yeah. right? And that's why they can pull an Aristotle and say, look, you know, it's it's right here. Right. We're the most educated in this. Therefore, we should decide what is good and not. Right. And that's what they did. Yeah. But it's interesting that, so they, they're influenced definitely by Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Ayn Rand's influenced by Aristotle, but she was like a devout atheist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I use devout for a very specific reason. Right, right. <laughs> because that was like her religion was being an atheist. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it shows kind of, how virtue ethics can be co-opted to a lot of different things. Right. Because if you generally, you know, if you believe in a nebulous virtue ethics without a specific morality that you tie it to, then it can go in a lot of different ways. And what Aristotle is tying it to is basically like a Buddhist mean. Yeah. That he spends a lot of the book talking about, which is that uh, you want to look for the appropriate level of moderation in all things. Yeah. And the way he gets there is kind of interesting because he really just sort of looks around and says, okay, you know, what do we consider good? Right. And let me see. This is the part where people quite reasonably reach their conception of the good. No, I'm trying to find the first example then. Because most of book one is about how, you know, happiness is the self-sufficient thing. We'll, we'll come back to that in a second. But I'm actually probably going to have to steal this from book two. Now that I'm already talking about it. Um, <laughs> here we go. So he says, first, then we should observe that these sorts of states naturally tend to be ruined by excess and deficiency. We see this happen with strength and health. For we must use uh, evident cases such as these as witnesses to things that are not evident. So he's saying that we have to use what's obvious to argue for what's not obvious. Right. Um, So for both excessive and deficient exercise, ruin bodily strength. And similarly, too much or too little eating or drinking ruins health, whereas the proportionate amount produces, increases, and preserves it. Yeah. Right. And he's saying that, you know, for what we can observe, right, if you eat the right amount and exercise the right amount, then you are at your optimal health level. Right. Too much of either, bad. Too little of either, bad. You want to be kind of like at that appropriate mean. And then he extrapolates that to everything else. And there's somewhere in the middle that's the appropriate mean. Exactly. Yeah. It's not necessarily a, you know, algebraic mean of yeah. you know, exactly in the middle, but they're, both sides are bad. Yep. So you want to be somewhere in that mid-range. I actually had a conversation yesterday with somebody who is a... Uh, so she's some type of pediatric surgeon or something. I forget what exactly she does, but she works at a children's hospital. And we were talking about alcohol, like drinking alcohol while someone's pregnant. Mm-hmm. And she was saying how uh, the recommendation is obviously for, you know, not to drink while you're pregnant, but that's not real. We oh, we were talking about evolution and how that relates to like modern pregnancies and stuff. Yeah. And so she was saying like back in the day, of course, like water was fairly unsafe. 
So people were drinking like all the time. Right. And she was like, it's very likely like a lot of people were drinking while they were pregnant. Yet we don't have like ridiculous number of documented like birth defects and stuff. Right. So she said the, the theories that you learn in med school are actually that there is, or at least that she learned in med school, is that there is up to a point, it's actually not that dangerous, mm-hmm. but you can't do that experiment at the right. right? Like, how are you going to figure out what that level is where it's safe? So it's just way better. And also people are dumb when the, when you say like, oh, you can have like one to two people are like, oh, I could have three to four. Yeah, and it's exactly. five. <laughs> so it's like, there's, there's no way that they can like make the recommendation that you can have one and it's okay. So they just say don't have any, they just don't know what the level is either or how that changes person to person. And like, there's no way to tell or to do that experiment. There's yeah. no way to tell without doing the experiment. And ethically doing that experiment would be horrible. Pretty bad. <laughs> so, um, so you all have to drink a fifth yep. of uh, Bacardi a day. Yeah. You get Brita filtered water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So to the point, right, that we're talking about for this golden mean, like using the edge cases is not actually a bad way to find it. But in that case, like in this case, obviously, you can't use that to find the golden right. mean. But there probably is a mean somewhere where it's like, fine. Yeah. But it's like, you can't really find it. But I, I like to what Aristotle's doing here to ju- make his point. It's actually not a bad way to to back into like for other things. It's not a bad way to back into where like where the appropriate moderation mm-hmm. point is. Well, I think politics is the perfect example. Yeah. Right. Where pretty much anyone who is far left or far right is for lack of a better term, wrong. Right. Like we right? talked about this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, you can't, you know, one, the idea that you would agree completely on you know, all social economic policies, you know, that are like wrapped up into a pre-existing bundle means that you, you either haven't thought about it or you're just like very indoctrinated. I think most people are just joining a team. Yeah, you're joining a team. Wanna buy their jerseys and like yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then the answer is, you know, somewhere in the middle. And I, I think we've talked about this a bit before too, but sometimes people think they are going to the middle when they're actually just like moving orthogonally in an equally extreme direction, right? So people who say, you know, oh, Democrats are wrong, Republicans are wrong, and I'm a strong libertarian, right? It's like, well, you're making the same mistake, yeah, right? Yes, it is in between those two things, but it is still just as far of the middle as either of those strong positions. I view religion the same way. Yeah. It's like people who are so atheist, like militantly atheist. Right. It's like the same as being religious about being atheist because we don't know the answers to these questions. And to be so sure that you're right. No, there's no, <laughs> you know, deity like thing in the universe. Right. Right? That like, is equally silly as believing there's, you know, a guy with a beard watching us. Right. I totally agree. Yeah. So you're right. The orthogonal arguments are really good one because it's like you're you're religious about, quote, not being religious. Yeah. Right. Like, like you're so religious. You believe that there's just nothing, right? And uh, yeah, it, it's interesting too. You see people who were raised in a religious family can often become like militantly atheist. Mm-hmm. And it's like they're just using their religious belief thought process, but just applying it to atheism. Yeah, they've got that almost visceral reaction to that old state, right? Yep. And instead of going, it's easier to swing in the other direction. That's what I mean, yeah. Just like maybe, I mean, I don't know if this happens in politics so much, but I could imagine like a strong Democrat becoming a strong Republican. Like, it's, I feel like that switch is easier than someone going from like a normal thinking, I don't want to say normal, like a somewhat in the middle type of person who is thinking about each issue and making that person like a strong Democrat or a strong Republican. Yeah, that'd probably be harder. That would be pretty hard. <laughs> you have to have something really like shocking happen, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how that would happen, actually. But I mean, I'm sure it does. 
but or the or you could maybe if, if you were like a single issue voter right yeah so if you know if you lost your family in 9-11 right yeah you become super hawkish or right? yeah or so let's say you lost somebody in a, in a shooting or something yeah it might be gun control might like be your gun control yeah so i can see that yeah you're right i could see that but it, there would need to be like a an event an inciting incident yeah i couldn't just see like somebody just slowly becoming reading something yeah <laughs> well i okay so this is where i think they're like you're talking like thing like atlas or something like that no i'm thinking like uh this was steven pinker's thing that he got so much shit for you know undeserved shit for okay because he gave that speech maybe he gave it at harvard he gave it somewhere where he was saying that a lot of the like alt-right activists are actually like very smart you know intelligent reasonable people who have been essentially militarized by this ideology because there are things that can't be talked about in social settings anymore. And then you discover that these things exist, Mm. right? And then you feel like you've been lied to your whole life by, you know, like a, you know, liberal institutions. And so then you strongly move in the other direction. So you think they must be lying about everything. Yeah. Well, I I think the example he gave, because he wrote, he wrote the blank slate, right? Which is basically all about, hey, humans aren't blank slates, right? We have sort of predetermined or pre-influenced, I should say, you know, personality traits and stuff like genes matter, right? I mean, do people think that's controversial? Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What? Those people also believe in evolution? (laughs) Well, no, I'm serious. Like, they're, they're, people who especially in you know more liberal colleges who will get really offended if you say that you know personality or behavior or intelligence or a lot of these things could be genetically influenced right but those those people would also get really bad if you told them like evolution like that you don't believe in evolution oh probably yeah but like those two things are so connected they're completely yeah yeah, they're completely inseparable right (laughs) they're necessarily glued together but what pinker was saying was that these you know otherwise very smart students yeah or young people go through you know education or something in places you know, like harvard right yeah and he's a teacher at harvard so he sees this so he tries to see it all the time yeah where you can't talk about some of that stuff because it's taboo mm, i can see that right? it's like talking about the gender different stuff right yep and then you know these kids go on wikipedia or something and they read the science and they're like oh wait this is all you know <laughs> i've just been being lied to how come i haven't been taught this in school right yeah and then the only other people who will say like oh yeah some traits are genetically determined right are you know like mm. us hanging out on this podcast or members of the alt-right apparently yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> made you think apparently. Well, I think that's why when you say some of this stuff people are like oh they're like all right right because and this is like I'm curious do listeners think we're all right I don't think our listeners would think no, we're all I mean right. I would hope hopefully people see the distinction right yeah but that is the most identifiable group with some of these ideas right and that's kind of like uh which actually really then backfires for the exactly uh, yeah like on the more liberal side because by not talking about the science you are opening up the door for someone to discover this other stuff right because then the only place you'll be able to talk about it is like the donald or what's the forum strong stronghold strong there's some like super alt-righty forum (laughs) named like that but yeah so that creates a big problem and i think Part of it, going back to this whole, you know, extreme versus the mean, yeah, is that, and I think Peterson has talked about this, where it's hard for the left to draw the line mm. and say like, oh, that's too extreme, but you know, I'm on this side of the line. I mean, you could say socialism because should be the 
should be the line. <laughs> well, but I think as we relate to the stuff we're talking about right now. Yeah. Right. Whereas if you're if you're more conservative, it's pretty easy to draw the line and be like, whoa, okay, I don't hate black people, right? right? I'm not on that side of the line. Or you're not advocating for like eugenics or yeah. something. Like, yeah. It's a little easier to say, like, all right, I'm not, you know, running around in a hood or like with an AR-15 on my back. That's true, actually. So when you do start saying agreeing that, like, yeah, we're not blank slates, that some people are more predisposed to being athletes or predisposed to being yeah, actually, it's so obvious. Like, obviously, some people are predisposed to being athletes versus like, yeah, put a bunch of like Asian men versus a bunch of Kenyan men and yeah. see who wins the race, right? Like, there was something I saw the other day that I think it's like a third of current NBA players have a uncle or father who played Division One basketball or NBA basketball. I believe that though. A third, which is a huge percentage of people. Yeah, but it makes sense for like the height that has to get selected for. Yeah, it makes total sense because there's probably not that many people of that height who like i'm sure there are people who are that height who don't play college basketball yeah but there also are probably like percentage wise a lot more people that play basketball who are six six than five ten right. you know yeah i wonder what the bell curve looks like for being over seven feet tall yeah it's gotta be like five it's gotta be like a four or five sigma yeah it's gotta be way out there yeah super small i mean there was a guy from uh india who played i think on arizona not in the NBA. He only played in college. Mm-hmm. He was like seven five or something. Had never played basketball until his like sophomore year of high school. And they like taught him the rules and like how to basically like what he's supposed to be doing. Yeah. To the point where like his form was horrible. But just the fact that he was seven five in college basketball, it was like as long as you get him the ball. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Just walk past everyone. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, uh, but you get like every rebound. But he he like I don't think he got drafted because I think he was just like too slow for the NBA. Yeah. But. But still, it's like height made such a difference. You just put him on defense, just stand around the hoop. But to your point, though, like if he had a kid who was also seven feet tall, which is much more likely than yeah. for us to have kids who are seven feet tall, it's like there's a good chance his kid would play, you know, play professional basketball. Well, and I don't think anybody would say, oh, that was just a random coincidence right. that your kid was seven feet tall. Exactly. <laughs> um, how did I start that? There was another point I was going to make related to that. You're talking about these forums. Yeah, we're talking about forums and talking about genetic differences and what you can't say and, you know, getting pulled away from the mean, drawing the line on the left versus the right, right? It's harder to draw it on the super liberal ideas because there's like more social pressure, I think. Anyway, I'll find the thought at some point. It doesn't matter. It'll come back. We're still talking about this mean and... Yeah, we're sort of on a tangent. (laughs) We haven't had a tangent in a while. This is a good tangent book. Yeah. So he kind of goes on in the intro and says that... And this is where, again, going back to what I was saying earlier, these kind of artificial categories. Yeah. Right. But he says that there are uh, roughly three most favored lives, the lives of gratification, of political activity and of study. Yeah. And he's basically saying that these are the three, you know, his hierarchies of a good life. Right. (laughs) So, you know, being fulfilled kind of starts as gratification, right? Drinking and partying and hanging out with your friends and stuff. But that's just one level, right? And then above that is political activity. And then the third level, he says study, but it basically means being a philosopher. Yeah. You know what this reminded me of, though? Because it's like that does not feel like all the categories yeah. at all. It reminds me of there's an episode of The Office where he's lecturing in a business school. Okay. Did you ever see this episode? Yeah. So Michael Scott is lecturing on business, basically, at a business. He's a guest lecturer. And he's like, there are like four types of business. And he starts listing them. And then he, as he's listing them, he realizes there's like all these other categories He's like manufacturing, travel, hospitality, food, 
airplanes. <laughs> and he's like, and a lot of others. <laughs> but he started with like a number and then he's like, yeah. oh shit, this is not even close <laughs> to like the actual number. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> that reminded oh. me of this though, because I don't know, like three just, these three didn't feel complete. But I get where he's saying, because like political activity, you could say that's also business in some ways, like relationships and yeah, you could, I mean, you could argue that. Study felt very narrow. Yeah. Well, so I think what he's getting at, which he explains more, is that these are the three sort of tiers of happiness most approaching what is uniquely human. Because the point that he goes on to make is that, uh, let's see. There's one about animals, right? Is that what you're... Well, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to find it, but he's basically saying that the perfect version of something or perfect version of pretty much everything is what it is most meant to do by its nature. Yes. Right. So there's a thing about the ox and the horse, right? Well, I I like the stone example. (laughs) And this is to be clear, like Aristotle was amazing for ethics, but he set pretty much every other form of science back a thousand years. Right. And this is one of the reasons. Right. So he says a stone, for instance, by nature moves downwards and habituation could not make it move upwards, even if you threw it up 10,000 times to habituate it. Nor could habituation make fire move downwards or bring anything that is by nature in one condition into another condition. And what he's basically saying is that stones have a downward nature, right? They have an inherent down tendency and fire has an inherent up tendency. And he's arguing that everything in the world has these natures, these tendencies, and the human nature is whatever sets it apart from everything else which appears to be reason. Yeah. Right. Reason and like this deep thought. Yeah. Because yeah, what you were pointing out earlier, like the lives of gratification, the bodily pleasures, those those sensations, any animal can do that. Can do that too. Yeah. A dog or an ox or a horse can just roll around and be happy. It's not uniquely human. As Pepper does all the time. (laughs) It's her favorite thing to do. Just being good again. Yep. Thankfully. (laughs) Uh, Political activity, right, is getting closer to more human, but it's still... I guess this one's harder, but it's kind of like more socializing, right. right? Being very focused on that interaction, which some animals and stuff can do to an extent. Dogs, chimpanzees. Yeah. Chimpanzees, definitely. Chimps, definitely. Although I wonder if I wonder if they knew what chimps were in ancient Greece. Yeah, that's a good question. They had gone to Africa. Yeah, so. they, traders would have gone to Africa. Yeah. So probably were. I don't know, maybe. Somebody, there might have been myths. Were there still lions in Europe at this time? Oh, I don't think. That was earlier, right? In Greece? So I think that was earlier. I think those got killed off like yeah. pre-Ice Age. Okay. Pre-Last Ice Age. I could be wrong. We have to look at our sapiens notes again. I was just wondering because they definitely knew what lions were. Yeah. Well, they had lions in the... Oh, that was more Rome. Yeah. So, But I'm wondering, did they capture them from Africa, which would mean they had trade going down to Africa for sure. Yeah. They must have had some trade going to Africa. Oh, and Carthage. Carthage was in Africa anyway. That's true. And uh, Carthage was later, though, I guess. But Egypt, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Egypt was even before Greece. But there's no chimps or anything in Egypt. No. It's very north. But I would imagine Egypt had probably sent explorers and stuff down. So they probably knew what chimps were. I wonder what they thought of chimps. Good question. At that time, because they, they look vaguely human. Yeah. You can't look at a chimp and not be like, whoa, this is a little creepy. Or a gorilla e- either. Yeah. Like, you look at a gorilla and you're like, okay, that looks like it's obviously not a human, but you're like, they have like the same kind of ears as I do. <laughs> Yeah, and some of the facial features too. Their eyes, like there's a lot of things that you're just like, okay, this is this looks well, especially if you're comparing it to a human with very like simian features. Cause some humans look more definitely simian than others, yeah. right? And so if you put them side by side, 
it'd just be like, whoa, okay, this is this is weird. Kind of weird. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, especially if you look at those reconstructions of Neanderthal yep. heads and faces, they look super close. That would be a weird uh species to have running around with us. Neanderthals? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good episode to do at some point. I would love to do it. Just dive deep into Neanderthal. The Neanderthal history one. Yeah. Have you done your DNA test? No, I still haven't. No. You asked me like five, ten episodes I know, ago, yeah. maybe, and I still haven't done it. Maybe we need to get 23andMe to be a sponsor. There we go. Give me a discount code. Code <laughs> think. Not yet. Don't, don't go use that. I think I've got like 0.5% Neanderthal DNA or something. What I've heard like... Well, you're part uh, Scandinavian, yeah, right? I've heard Northern Europeans have a higher percentage. Yeah, because they were more cold adapted. Neanderthals were. Yeah. Actually, and interestingly, the only way that you're pure sapien is if you're from Africa, right? Yeah. Or every other like race of sapiens has some Neanderthal DNA blended into it. You know a random tangent that we're going to go on right now? What's up? That I've always wondered. Maybe you know the answer to this. Yeah. Why would Indian people be as hairy as we are? That's a good question. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Right? That's like having a furry dog in like a desert. Yeah. Right? Like it just wouldn't work. <laughs> I have heard the insulation explanation, right? So because hair could be heating and it could be insulating. Oh, I see. Right. So protect from the sun, maybe. Oh, in some yeah. Ways. Yeah. So you're reflecting back. Well, because there are some dogs that are really like big and floofy but their coats are designed in a way to also release heat, right? So I think it's Samites, those huge, big, fluffy white ones. Yeah. They've got two different kinds of fur, Hmm. like different fur on their chest and on their backs, and it keeps them warm in the winter, but also cooler in the summer. Oh, that's smart. And so people make the mistake of shaving their dog down for the summer, and then their dog overheats. But that actually keeps them hot. Yeah. So it could be something like that. It could be something like that. Because, yeah, because Scandinavians are not that hairy. Right. Like, you'd think that they would be pretty hairy, but most Northern European guys, eh, some are. But a lot of Northern European guys are pretty, like, hairless. Yeah, relatively, yeah. And it's also thinner hair. Because, like, skin color makes some sense. Yeah. Right? Because, like, like just melanin. Protect against the sun. Exactly. Well, and that kind of seems to go based on how close you are to the equator or not as close to the equator. Like, it seems to be a fairly logical flow. Yeah. Between like even in India, right? Like the northern Indians are lighter than South Indians, and South India is much closer to the equator. And it, it really is kind of like a color chart as you go down. Yeah. Like that makes sense. Well, if you look at Koreans and Mongolians versus, you know, people in Thailand or Cambodia, right? Yep. Or like honestly, even like Scandinavia versus like Italians. Yeah. More Mediterranean you are. Yeah. Definitely you can tell, but like hair doesn't seem to flow the same way. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, it's not like the closer you are to the equator, the more hair or less hair you have. It just seems like not related to the equator. Hair texture seems to be, mm. right? Because uh, Northern Europeans seem to have much thinner hair, right? So if you, you know, if you like look at, you know, uh, German or Finnish or Scandinavian hair versus yeah. like, Indian or African hair, right? It's usually thicker. Yeah. So I wonder if that has some utility too. That must have something to do with it. Yeah. It's a good question. See, these are kinds of questions that you're not really allowed to ask. I think probably in school. This one seems pretty neutral. Hair hair seems neutral. Yeah. Skin color one would be like I mean the melanin thing is just so obvious that you can't not talk about it. Yeah, I don't think that one is so bad. But like racial differences like that like this is probably the limit of where you can start yeah, talking we're, about. We're like pushing up against yeah. it right? if you went into class and you were like why do asians score higher on iq oh, tests no. right then then we get into trouble <laughs> yeah i think that probably get you in big trouble at university now 
Uh, did you like propose doing that as like a project? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> did you see the thing that came out about Harvard today? No. Oh, big New York Times report just came out. What was it? The group that's been suing Harvard for Asian American discrimination did this like huge cohort analysis on 160,000 applications okay. of students who have applied there over the last 15 years. And the data they came back with is like pretty bad, which- What did they come back with? Well, basically that if you went on just academic scores, right? Asians should make up about 43% of the Harvard population. They actually make up 19. Oh, wow. That's a huge difference. Yeah. So when you when you account for legacy and sports, okay, that goes from 43 to 31, right? And the white percentage goes way up. And then when you account for extracurriculars and personality score, it goes from like 31 to 26. Okay. And then, you know, getting more populations that, you know, like less advantaged and takes it down from 26 to 19, right? So uh, that was, you know, one part that was kind of interesting. But the most interesting part to me was that there's like a score for students' aptitude. Okay. And like a single metric. Yeah, it's like a general, it's an aggregated metric that Harvard uses for assessing someone's, you know, it's like SATs and GPA and all of that. Got it. And the Asian students were on average 25% higher than the white students. Oh, wow. But there's another metric that Harvard uses called like personality fit. Okay. And the Asian students' scores on that were about 25% lower. Ah, interesting. Right? And so it just seems weird because if you if you heard that a company was analyzing applications and like all of the women were scoring 25% higher than the men, but they were taking more men because they rated the men as better culture fits. Yeah, oh man, like, that, would that be, wouldn't be okay. No, that would, <laughs> that would be pretty bad. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I understand the criticisms of the research. Yep. And, you know, obviously there is some need for like, maybe there's some need for diversity. I mean, like yep. my biggest thing with all the diversity stuff is, you know, Harvard created that to keep Jews out. Hey. Like that was added in the 20s because Jews were destroying the admissions tests. Harvard became like 40% or something Jewish at one point. Oh, wow. Really? And then, yeah. And then the people running it were like, mm, we don't like this. So we're going to start assessing candidates. There was a lot of racism towards Jewish yeah. people not that long ago in the United States. Yeah. You, until fairly recently, being Jewish wasn't considered white. Yeah. Like, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you didn't have the same rights, basically. Right. Uh, it's pretty bad. Yeah. But that was why they added these metrics. They added these personality scores and stuff. Allegedly, allegedly, right? So people would show up as like worse personality fits. Exactly. That's effectively the same as like, oh, they're not a culture fit. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's like, oh, this person doesn't have, you know, what we're looking for in a Harvard student. No, let me ask you though, since they're a private school, it's not really like illegal, right? Or is it? That's a good question. I mean, Because they always say like, oh, we can shape our student body yeah. to fit like whatever. Like there's no, like if it was a public school, I totally could see them like it's completely wrong. They definitely get some amount of benefit from the government, though. Oh, definitely they get benefit right. from government. So I think that's sure. where part of it becomes an issue. Yeah, but I, but I think there is also that element of if companies can't discriminate, right? Should schools be able to? Yeah, because a private company. Yeah, if a private company, yeah, yeah. If Apple, it turned out, right, yeah. was rating all of the Asian applicants higher, but then taking fewer of them and rating them as worse personality fits, like <laughs> that, like wouldn't be okay. Yeah, yeah, that'd be a pretty reasonable lawsuit. And you're like not even allowed to, or at least I've always assumed you're not even allowed to ask like how old somebody is when you're interviewing them. Correct. Right? Yeah. yeah. So like, because you could argue that's like age discrimination if you don't, if someone's too old or like, yeah. So 
whether you're a private company or a public company, you still have to follow that. Right. It's not that just because you're a private company, you could be like, okay, I don't want to hire that 50 year old because he's 50 years old. Yeah. Right. That would be age discrimination. You know, our company, I don't think companies are allowed to ask for your race, are they? To your, for your race? Yeah. Probably not. I don't know, but it's so not why, that. Why are colleges allowed to? That's a good question, actually. Yeah. There must be a distinction made somewhere. Yeah, I got. I have to be wrong in there somewhere. Or maybe yeah. they just can because of affirmative action. That must be why. Because yeah. there's no equivalent for jobs. Yeah, and you don't have to be honest about your race, right? So I know a lot of Asian students will just not list their race. On college applications? Yeah, or they'll say, like, prefer not to specify. Interesting. Because actually, I mean, if you're Asian, then you shouldn't put that on. Yeah, that would be the smart thing to do. Although <laughs> yeah. then, then they'll start to just assume that if you don't put it, you're probably Asian. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a good point. You're, you're either Asian my... or raised in a very postmodernist household. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They don't want either of them. <laughs> yeah. Or they do want the postmodernist They might want the postmodernist kids. Yeah. Up until my junior year of high school, we didn't realize that when... Because I, I moved school systems when we moved from New Jersey to Maryland. Mm-hmm. I guess when I we had registered in Montgomery County, the person registering us checked off Indian as in Native American. Amazing. <laughs> and we didn't find out until my junior year because it was some like transcript or something we were looking at for college applications and it said Native American. And then my mom obviously made me change it. But then in hindsight, <laughs> we were talking, we were like, oh, that would have been really good for college applications. Oh, just left it on. Yeah. <laughs> but it was also like we weren't sure if that's like, because obviously we didn't check it off ourselves. But then when you're doing the application, if you check that off, then it's you actually making the, yeah. like, the lie, right? And yeah, that would have been wrong. But I probably would have not gone to CMU. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, then we would never would have met. We wouldn't be here doing this. So. We didn't even meet at CMU. Well, no, but we, we met because we both went to CMU. We met through the Pittsburgh Mafia. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, we should say the post-Pittsburgh Mafia. Yeah. <laughs> the Alpha Lab has a lot of like ridiculous alumni like, yeah. who've done a lot of really cool things. It just sucks for Alpha Lab yeah, they don't does. get equity in any of those new things. Nobody's Alpha Everybody Lab company learned. does well. Exactly. Everybody learned on their dime. Yeah. Alpha Lab is like <laughs> subsidizing people to <laughs> get their first foray into entrepreneurship so they can go to Y Combinator next time. Yeah, that kind of sucks for them. Because they have a lot of like they pick the right people, it seems like they do a yeah. decent job picking people pick who people are gonna be potential. Yeah. Yeah. Just too early in their career too right early. of like potential. <laughs> maybe they should just like well no that's not that wouldn't work either because then they just wouldn't go there i was gonna say they should just not take college students anymore but that also doesn't help because then they leave pittsburgh yeah exactly after college and then <laughs> they go to the valley anyway yeah yep <laughs> or increasingly austin it looks like austin yeah <laughs> yep <laughs> but anyway back to the book so it's a good tangent book yeah it's a good tangent book well there's a lot of themes in here and it's very you know like low level foundational philosophy. Yeah. And so you can take it in a lot of directions, right? Because he, he's got this cool point here in the intro where he says that being virtuous requires action, right? Because it seems possible for someone to possess virtue, but be a sleeper inactive throughout his life. And moreover, to suffer the worst evils and misfortunes. If this is the sort of life he leads, no one would count him happy except to defend a philosopher's paradox, right? Yeah. So this, this virtuous, ideal life requires effort and work yeah right and it's not something that you can just stumble into be born into or and this is where it might conflict with some christian theology right you can't simply like go to church right or say that you believe in god and then be a good person right? although this is uh if you remember the religion chapter in skin in the game this is one thing that celeb talks about with fasting like he said uh about for easter right yeah. he said that he feels entitled to 
celebrate Easter because he participates in Lent oh. and has basically a vegan diet for 40 days or whatever before Easter. Right. And he was saying, there's just the quote I remember is that like true belief requires skin in the game mm. and you have to take the actions basically do the suffering and then you're truly, you get the rewards of the faith. Right. Right. Instead of like, you can't just sell it. Like in his, in his opinion, he was like, you can't just celebrate Easter and expect it to feel the same as if you did Lent and then celebrated Easter. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Cause like that lamb is not going to taste nearly as good <laughs> as if you haven't had meat for 40 days. <laughs> like, oh yeah. Yeah. It is 40 days, right? Or am I wrong about that? Uh, some period of time. It's some like, it's not like a week. That's Ramadan, isn't it? Yeah. Or maybe Lent is 40 days. It's longer than a week. Yeah. It's fairly long. So to eat a mostly vegan diet and then feast on lamb would be very good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All over that. But I see what he's saying though with that, right? Yeah. you can't, uh, I mean, even for anything, like if you inherit wealth versus if you make wealth yourself, it's not really the wealth, like objectively the amount of money is the same, let's say. Right. Let's say you inherit a million dollars or you make a million dollars, you probably feel a lot, not probably, you will feel a lot more satisfied. You would feel like you earned it much more if you actually made the million dollars than if you someone just handed you a million dollars. Yeah. It, it's hard to really describe. I'm having trouble finding the words for what the difference is, but there is a difference if you had the action versus if it was just given to you. It just happened. Yeah. So I'd imagine like winning the lottery versus building a company or something would be very different. Yeah. Which kind of feeds into his point later about kind of like what happiness is and what good is for humans. Yeah. Because we, you know, we jumped ahead a little bit and said there's this nature for humans, which is this sort of rational thought. Uh, But then he's also saying it has to be an activity. Right. Right. You can't just have virtue. And so he is basically saying a bit later on that the human good proves to be activity of the soul in accord with virtue. And indeed, the best and most complete virtue if there are more virtues than one, mm. which leads into a lot of the rest of the book. Yeah. Right. Because he's saying on a high level, right, happiness is exercising in accordance with virtue. Yeah. Right. And using reason and kind of being this philosopher king who is, you know, well tempered between the extremes of kind of like all things in life. Yeah. And that kind of forms the basis for all these other areas that he's going to go on and talk about. But it also gives you a good lens to look at anything, right? And to say, okay, you know, just from that, I know what to do in pretty much every situation. Yeah. Right? Like you can get a good idea as long as you are an effective judge of what is deficient and which is the requirement. Yeah. Extreme. Right. That's where it gets hard. Yeah. Because somebody who is. Well, he brings that up though. Yeah. Well, that's one of the first things. Well, he talks about it for political science, right? But oh, he's like, yeah, that is yeah. wh- this is why a youth is not a suitable student of political science for he lacks experience of the actions in life. So he's kind of arguing that like, you don't actually know the boundaries initially, but then by experiencing and living, you learn where the boundaries are. Right. And he comes back to that much later too and says that if you don't know where the boundary is, just shoot for one of the edges right? <laughs> and then kind of swing back the other way yeah. as you hit it and you'll figure it out as you go. Yep. Right. <laughs> Which you can do, I think, in a lot of areas, right? Definitely. Like you could get super obsessed with money for a while and then realize like, all right, this doesn't make me happy. Right. And then and that's what a lot of people go through, right? It's like, yeah. it doesn't have to even just be money. It could be work. It could be like any, any extreme, right? And then you figure out that, oh, I'm too far this way. I need to swing back the other. 
and then you you probably have to swing back again because you right. go too far and people who get out of a relationship and they're like i'm gonna do just me right right for a while and like i don't want to be attached to anyone and they do that for a couple months and they're like all right i'm lonely yep right <laughs> i want to you know get into like something right be it social at least we were even talking about for like meditation and mindfulness yeah right it's like there is definitely value in being mindful and like living in the moment but then there's also you can go too far on the meditation angle. At least in my opinion, you can go too far on the meditation angle. Right. We're just way too like zoned out and ambitionless. Yeah. And that's not good either. Or at least it's missing the, the mean. Yeah. You're missing the mean. You're, you're not in the mean. So that's basically book one where he's leading into what happiness is and how we might cultivate it. Yeah. And he's ending with that, you know, the line we just led about it's this activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. And then he has to say what virtue is. And that's what a lot of the next part of the book gets into is, you know, what are these virtues of character? And this is where he starts arguing that is related to our nature and in particular that our virtue of thought arises and grows mostly from teaching, right? So he says that it grows mostly from teaching. That is why it needs experience and time. Virtue of character results from habit, hence its name ethical, slightly varied from ethos, right? So he's saying that, you know, ethical ethos, right? It's a practice. It's a yeah. doing, right? You have to do this stuff. You can't simply be virtuous. You have to act virtuous. And you almost build the muscle as you do it more. You build the muscle. It's a habit. Yeah. And he kind of says that, you know, excellence and habit and or excellence and virtue and happiness are activities. Yeah. They are not states. They are things that you do, right? Not things that you necessarily are. But we have to figure out... Which is encouraging. It is encouraging. I like that. I think for everybody because it means like We've all acted unethically at some point in the past and we've all acted ethically. And I think well, at least what I took away from this is like if you practice acting more ethically, you become more ethical. Right. And it becomes easier to be ethical in the future. Yeah. That's an encouraging message. And it, I guess it works the other way, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's again doing that thing where he pulls from the observable to apply to the unobservable. He says that we become builders by building. We become harpists by playing the harp. Similarly, then we become just by doing just actions, temperate by doing temperate actions, brave by doing brave actions. And then he gets into what I was saying before about these states get ruined by excess and deficiency. Yeah. So for temperance and justice and bravery, you have to figure out like what is the appropriate amount. And again, going back to this kind of like habit and action virtue, a lot of it is developed by doing it. So for abstaining from pleasures makes us become temperate. And once we have become temperate, we are most capable of abstaining from pleasures. Right. It's kind of like flywheel effect. Yeah. Right. The more you do it, the better you get at it. The better you get at it, the more you do it. It gets easier and easier. Which I think we've all observed in ourselves. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that and that is really like the power of habit to steal the book title. Yeah. <laughs> is that once you kind of get over that initial hump of getting in the process of doing something, it almost becomes easier to keep doing it than to stop doing it. Right. <laughs> right. I think you notice this if you go to the gym regularly. Yeah. Right. If you get in the habit of going three, four days a week, you start to feel kind of shitty when you don't go. Yeah. And so it actually becomes easier to just keep going than to stop. Right. And likewise with like eating healthy or like, uh, I mean, if someone's in the habit of eating like candy every day, the first day you don't eat candy is going to really be hard. Be really hard. But then once you're in the habit of not eating candy, it actually feels weird to eat candy. It might still taste good, yeah. but you feel like you're doing something wrong. Whereas before when you were eating candy every day, it doesn't feel odd at all. It feels normal. Yeah. 
So I guess your sense of normal changes. Well, and even more dramatically, uh, I've noticed that when I'm eating well, if I eat something particularly bad. Yeah, you notice with your body. You, yeah, you feel terrible. Yep. You get like this splitting headache yep. and stomach will feel nasty. It's just like, whoa, okay, that is not something that should be going in my body. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're listening to this and you can eat a Chick-fil-A sandwich without, you know, getting a splitting headache and feeling terrible, then you probably need to eat better. <laughs> <laughs> Or you have a iron body, which yeah, or you're just super anti-fragile. It sucks because I really like pizza, and there are times if I like excessively eat pizza, or it's a particularly oily kind of pizza or something, or just made extra delicious via not so good means. (laughs) You don't feel that good the next day. Yeah, and yeah, that kind of sucks. I noticed if I have good pizza, if you have good good quality pizza, you feel fine. But if you have like the dollar pizza at two o'clock in the morning, then it's hard to also know what's the effect of being up at two o'clock in the morning versus... That's a good point, yeah. <laughs> eating the pizza. Neil, Neil was up drunk at, until 2 a.m. and he's blaming the pizza. <laughs> yeah, I'm blaming the pizza for something that's not the pizza. There's some fault. serious selection bias going on here. <laughs> hey, this is last Saturday. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> this is why we didn't record on Sunday. Yep. <laughs> we were both up at 2 a.m. eating pizza. Yep. <laughs> There's something about 2 a.m. pizza that just tastes amazing. It's so good. You know what? It probably mitigates the the hangover there is something to that that like the oil like greasy food does actually have some utility for absorbing the what's it called whatever toxin it is that develops in your stomach when you drink alcohol interesting i can't remember the name of it but there is some utility i'm gonna say every culture has a post hangover food that is all seems to be based on oil and grease and carbs and deliciousness. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. You don't. You just don't feel nearly as good afterwards if you have a salad. Right. Exactly. It doesn't really help. It's like <laughs> oh, I'm being healthy, but I don't really feel any better. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if it's a salt or something. There's like something. Oh, you know, the can, salt would make sense. Yeah. We've got a corner deli that delivers like greasy breakfast sandwiches. Nice. <laughs> so sometimes if we're feeling really rough in the morning, we'll roll over and Cosette will order one for breakfast. And they'll like bring it to the door and, you know, I'll stumble over there in my pajamas. But like, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that and some Gatorade. And, maybe it's, and also maybe the salt makes you thirsty. So you drink more water. There's probably some yeah. weird flywheel effect there. Flywheel too. effect. Yeah, something good going on. Anyway, we're going on a lot of tangents. Today. Yeah. We're not even having mushroom coffee. I know, yeah. We're missing out. Well, the lap song is yeah. good for it too. Very stimulating. Tangent fuel. Tangent fuel. But like we said before, being virtuous while being asleep doesn't count, right? Yeah. It requires action. And similarly, action is not enough, even in the case of these skills, because it's possible to produce a grammatical result by chance or by following someone else's instructions. To be grammarians, then we must both produce a grammatical result and produce it grammatically. That is to say, produce it in accord with the grammatical knowledge in us. So it's not good enough to do something right. You must also do it right because you know that it is right. Right. Well, it makes me always think, I always thought about this with the idea of of a sin Mm. versus not sinning. It's like, it's not, I never would give anyone much credit for if you just were never put in a position to sin and then you didn't sin. It's kind of like, you know, there was no temptation, so... The fact that you didn't do anything isn't really impressive at all. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> but if you were tempted by something or you had an easy way to, you know, sin in some way, whether it's like cheat or lie or steal or whatever, and then you don't do it, that's actually showing that you're virtuous. Right. Because you're, you were tempted to take an action that was not virtuous. And so you kind of got presented with this opportunity and you did the right thing. And to your point, for the right, like, you know, it's the right thing. And it wasn't just a, you know, while you're asleep type of decision. It was something you had to think about and you chose the right 
the right action. Yeah, you're right. There's a there's a qualitative difference between the two, even though the objective action might be the same. Yeah, like you might you might make the right choice, but if you make it while asleep, basically you're not really making the right act. Like I guess you don't know that you're doing it for the right reason. You're just doing it because I don't know. You just happened. You just happened. Yeah. I mean, you could easily trying to think of a real life example. Well, let's say you know, imagine like the trolley problem, right? Where the trolley's coming mm. and it's going to run someone over. But imagine that you just like fall over without knowing and like hit the switch without knowing it and you save four people's lives. Yeah. It'd be hard to say that you did a good thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You like fell <laughs> over and a good thing happened, but you didn't really like do a good thing. Right. That's a great point. It's kind of a similar idea here. But where I think this is also kind of interesting is kind of how this concept ties into AI and philosophy of mind stuff that we've talked about on the episode before. Mm. Right. Because when we were doing Homo Deus, and Harari was talking about the concept of mind and how there's really no compelling argument that there is this like thinking thing, this mind separate from the brain, and right. just kind of all these chemical signals, and we have some consciousness as some weird you know result of it. Yeah, that kind of brings into question some of this because then it's like, well, you know, are we ever really being virtuous then, or are we ever, or does this does this even apply? Mm. Right, because there's a there's a famous thought experiment called the Chinese Room. Okay, no, I'm not familiar with that. So this was uh, Searle's, I think it's Searle, yeah, uh, Searle's refutation to the Turing test. Because, you know, the, the Turing test is like, okay, if you go into a room and you're typing in questions and getting back answers, and if you can't tell, you know, who's answering a human or a computer, then the computer has reached, like, consciousness, kind of. But then Searle came up this with this thought experiment called the Chinese room where you could imagine going into a room and having a giant book of Chinese characters and a Chinese character comes in one side, you flip through the book, you find the corresponding response to it and you feed the response back out. And to somebody on the other side, it would seem like you knew Chinese, right? Right. Cause they're getting good responses, but you don't know Chinese. You're just looking up answers. You're just doing a lookup. Yeah. And so I think Aristotle would say that that, you know, Chinese room person, if these were like ethical dilemmas would not be being ethical, right? Cause they're just, you know, looking up the answers and setting it back. Yep. But then the question that I kind of have is like, well, are we ever not doing doing that. that yeah is there actually a qualitative difference between the chinese room That's and a good, very good question like human thought and action right i don't know we like to think there is yeah right because it makes us feel good to imagine that we're not just you know sitting in a dark room flipping through a book printing out answers so i would but, i agree with you we just don't know yeah i would also argue that it doesn't help us to think that we are just doing the lookup because i would just argue that that makes it easier to take unethical actions because then I can always blame that, right? If I truly believe that like, oh, there's no real, it's almost like a postmodernist-esque argument mm. because then it just gives me an excuse to be bad yeah, effectively, right? And because I can always just say, oh, it's just the way my brain looks up these things is it thinks that this action is okay, but it it feels like it feels wrong, but it doesn't, does that, doesn't make it wrong. Yeah. Right. So my argument to any of those types of things is always, it doesn't help us to believe that argument. What's <laughs> <laughs> well, the problem with so much of this philosophy stuff sometimes? I know. It's like, it's right. like, like this is the most, the Aristotle's argument here is probably more, I don't want to say it, it might be true. It might not be true, but it's probably the most effective on a broad scale. Yeah. Like it's the best for society for people to believe this. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. It's very pragmatic. <laughs> it's pragmatic is the word I was looking for. Yeah. yeah, it's pragmatic. 
but it's also pragmatic on a broader scale. It's like pragmatic individually, but it's also pragmatic for society to have people believe this. Yeah. It doesn't make it true, but it's pragmatic. It's kind of like religion too, right? It's like religion could not be true, like completely not be true, mm. but it doesn't hurt like as a means of controlling people's behavior. Yeah, if it leads to good things, right. then... Like thinking like the Ten Commandments or something, right? It's like, right. yeah, God may or may not have spoken those Ten Commandments, but that doesn't mean those Ten Commandments don't lead to a stable society. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It doesn't mean that they're bad ideas. Yeah. yeah. That's a good way of framing it. Yeah, they're like, I don't know if these are right or, or not. Yeah, I don't know if Aristotle's argument is like scientifically true. Right. But it might just help society be stable <laughs> and for you to you know live a life where you're not killed by people who hate you <laughs> like socrates yeah <laughs> well and i think that part of what he's arguing here too is that it is your duty as a citizen right because in some ways he's writing this book to his son his son's name was nicomachus right it's the nicomachean ethics oh really yeah okay. so it's kind of like a guide to being a good person hmm. right partially for his kid supposedly and so he could be saying here that you can't just hope that you will do the right thing. You need to study and learn and figure out what is the virtuous amount of each of these behaviors. Right. Right. You can't simply hope that you'll do the right thing and you can't just do something because someone tells you to. Right. Right. Which is what he's getting at here. Doing the right action because you know it's the right action but without knowing why it's the right action is still insufficient. You must also understand the why, right? Yeah. It's almost like first principles, ethical reasoning. That's a great way of framing it, actually. First principles, yeah. yeah. It's like you know the bottom-up reason for why you're doing it as opposed to just some, I did it because someone told just me. Like, oh, somebody told me. To. Yeah. <laughs> Which is where he would have some issue maybe with the Ten Commandments and with religion. Right. Because you're doing it because someone said. Because they're just saying like, oh, well, God said do this, right? And right. Aristotle would be like, mm, this doesn't seem good enough. Yeah. I agree, actually. That makes total sense. Yeah. And that's kind of goes back to the idea of sinning also. If you don't sin because something is against what God said versus you don't sin because you know it's wrong for these reasons or something. Which is, I think, a very fair criticism some people have of Christianity and Islam in particular. Mm. They're very rule-driven. Yeah, well, very rule-driven and rule-driven because of, like, the books. Right. Whereas, I think, you know, for one, right, if you look at less deity focused religions right like buddhism or something it's much more you know do this because it will be a good life right right and even judaism to a certain extent is not like do this because yahweh says so yeah it's like do this because like this is good right or even like uh in a lot of ways just like pagan religions too right yeah. it's kind of similar where it's not really there's no book no it's just mythology and shared stories yeah and you're doing these stories and there's like good and bad gods but they the good gods have elements of bad in them and bad gods have elements of good in them and yeah it's very similar to like how real life actually is. It's less simple, right? It's less like easy to communicate those ideas. Right. Because it requires knowing a lot of the stories, whereas books do make it easy to create like this centralized control structure, like a church. Yeah, like clear rules. Because it's like there's no church of Buddhism. No. <laughs> right. Or like, right. So I would argue like, and that probably is why uh, it was easier for them to spread. Easier for for the like Christianity and Islam to spread. Oh yeah, because you just take a book with you. Exactly. And like, Here you go. Here's the rules. Here's the rules. Yeah, it's like they're not like a because I would also think for like pagan religions, like Hinduism is like a pagan type of religion, right? Which is and it's different regionally. Like there's no Hinduism. Yeah. There's no, not really a Hinduism. There's like some core books, but yeah, there's some core books and some core stories. It's, there's no like core rules. Yeah, but there's no like these are the tenets of the religion, right? And different people have their own interpretations of different things, and well, different families and 
and stuff will prioritize different like quote unquote gods or gods isn't even i guess like the right term right yeah deities are probably the term yeah, yeah they're they're much more similar to like the roman the roman gods or like greek gods right they're yeah. like they're fallible almost like characters they're fallible creatures yeah characters yeah like characters in the story characters feels weaker right but I, that almost gets the idea better it's like yeah. these mythological yeah beings basically yeah but there's no like there's no equivalent of God. There's no, yeah, there's no like Krishna is watching over you. And so, yeah, or there's no this like unfallible, like all knowing entity. Yeah. Which is why I like the sort of like pagan y yeah. gods better. They make it's much more interesting stories. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and they're, I also find they're just much more similar to how real life seems to operate, where like yeah. everyone, like there's no human who's 100% good, I would argue. Yeah. There's no Jesus character. Right. Right. In real life. Yeah. I mean, that's also, it's also a powerful idea, right? To have an ideal that is perfect, but yeah. it's, which is why it's been able to spread so much, but it's also unrealistic, it seems. Yeah. I mean, and that's what I like about virtue ethics in particular is that it's really not about creating perfect ethical laws or, you know, having an intense calculus for moral decisions. Yep. It's really just, you know, like, hey, try to be a good person and figure out what that means. I also like how Aristotle, and I don't know, I think we're probably skipping ahead on this part, but I really like how he says that you have to like find it for yourself. Yeah. Kind of thing, right? It's a big part here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's got this great line. Uh, we must also examine what we ourselves drift into easily. For different people have different natural tendencies towards different goals, and we shall come to know our own tendencies from the pleasure or pain that arises in us. We must drag ourselves off in the contrary direction, for if we pull far away from error, as they do in straightening bent wood, we shall reach the intermediate condition. Yeah. So you got to figure out, you know, what your weaknesses are and then pull hardest against those so that you end up, you know, in about the right level area, the yeah. right area. Right. Like we all have vices that are like easier for us than other people or like like everybody has particular things. Yeah. Like I know for me, I enjoy smoking way, way, way too much, which is why I so far pull in the other direction that I don't even let myself go to smoke anything because like when I was like smoking uh, hookah or cigars, I never really like cigarettes, but I just like realized how enjoyable they were. Yeah. And then I was like, oh shit, I could see myself doing this like every single day, which is not good. <laughs> I should right. probably not be doing this at all then. Um. But yeah, and then it's like to, to Aristotle's point, there's like natural tendencies that we just have and you kind of have to find those for yourself, which is why the this is almost a bottom up approach, like figure it out for yourself as opposed to a like don't smoke right. type of approach or like top down. Yeah. And somebody who like doesn't a, enjoy smoking, if you tell them don't smoke, it's like not that hard for them to follow it. Yeah. For someone who really enjoys it, it's like, okay, you got to really try to not do it. And I think this is probably where you get some of that righteous mind effect of people looking down on other people for behaving in certain ways while they themselves behave badly in mm -hmm. other ways that are you know, maybe easy for that person not to do. Right. Right. Where it's like, uh, you know, thinking critically of someone for, you know, smoking. Yeah. Right. But they don't spend three hours a day watching TV and you do. Right. Right. And Scott Adams makes that argument for gluttony, actually, too, for, oh, yeah. for eating where because like he, I, I think, used to be out of shape and now he's in like ridiculous shape or something. And he was saying that naturally he really likes to eat unhealthy food. And he was making the argument that like the pleasure you might get from drinking is the pleasure that like he was getting from eating. Mm. And so for you to keep your, you know, your eating under control might be not that hard for you, but to keep your drinking under control might be really hard for you. He's like, picture that to be the exact same situation for me, where like, this is, this is like my vice basically was yeah. just eating. 
and especially eating like particularly unhealthy foods. So he was like, when I brought that mindset to it, it was a lot easier to fix because I was viewing it not as like, this is just what I like to eat. It's like I was viewing it in the same category as drinking, smoking, like drugs and things like that. Makes sense. Uh, but that's like a vice as well, right? And that's like his unique vice. And everyone's got everyone's got their advice. Yeah. And they, and you have your own proportion, right? Some people, yeah, like everybody has probably many different vices, but in different levels. Right. Some are worse than others. And you probably focus on those, but you probably have other things. Like we just talked about pizza. We both like to yeah, eat we pizza. Both love and we know pizza. it's not good for us. Nope. But hey, it's delicious. <laughs> yeah. Right. But I am never tempted to like goof off and watch YouTube videos during work. Right. Or like yeah, me neither. Working, yeah. working. Yeah. And videos in particular are not something I get to. Yeah, I really. But some people, obviously, YouTube's like, I think the second most popular site on the internet or something like something that. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> but I will spend a lot of time on Reddit yeah. or Twitter. <laughs> Twitter is a hard Twitter's one. Twitter's the bad yeah. one, yeah. And I always can trick myself into thinking it's being productive, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, well, I meet people like Neil on Twitter. Which so it might be good. productive, though. You, little, probably, yeah. I mean, you, build, you definitely built a good audience on Twitter. And, yeah. And I, I put up like an article idea yesterday and was getting lots of feedback yeah. on it. It's like, there, there's some utility there. Yeah. And you have to build the audience. Otherwise, you don't get the... It's true. So you, you got to... use it when you need it to be You got to tweet clever things yeah. <laughs> multiple times a day. Build that get following. Get into Twitter fights. Yeah, get into Twitter fights. Subtweet Matt's people. That's the Twitter fights this week. Uh, I love Twitter fights. Yeah. <laughs> It's very anti-fragile of you. It is, yeah. <laughs> Increases your spread. Book three, there wasn't a whole lot, I remember. Yeah, I mean, book three and four. So, like, four is a lot about truth. Book five is about justice. Yep. Book six, kind of virtues of thought. So, there's one thing in here that is actually kind of interesting, which was a fairly common idea at the time. And I think Socrates, or Plato initially came up with this idea, which is that everyone already knows everything. Hmm. And you just have to draw it out of them. And the way he argued for this was that by using the Socratic method, you could teach children geometry, right? And so there's, I don't remember what book it's in, but... The idea just feels wrong. Well, so Plato has like a, a story that <laughs> I he I could be wrong about that, but Of yeah. like Socrates and a poor like farmer's child, right? And this is one of the apocryphal Socrates stories, not one of the actual dialogues, but... In Plato's story, Socrates like finds this child or Socrates is like drinking with his friends and makes a bet that, you know, anybody, everybody already knows geometry. If you can ask them the right questions. See, geometry, I could actually believe because it's like we probably do have instincts for how objects move and not move, but how they are shaped. Well, but it was like Pythagorean type oh, stuff. Oh, really? So yeah, it was like actual, yeah. It was like some actual. It wasn't like what's a square or what's right. a rectangle like what's the difference between them like i feel like people could tell you okay that side is longer than yeah. this side yeah but, but it was something like you know he draws a triangle in the sand and then he draws a line through it and he's like you know how much of the space is in each of these right and then it gets into i think it gets into like how long is this line i might be messing up my timetables here but i just remember it was an interesting way to frame it like obviously we don't we're not born knowing geometry right but that was kind of a common idea at the time oh, interesting and so that's why he has this line where he says, further, every science seems to be teachable and what is scientifically knowable is learnable. But all teaching is from what is already known, as we also say in the analytics, for some teaching is through induction, some by deduction. And uh, it's a mix of like teaching is from what is already known by the teacher, but also by the student. Like, the student. And that learning is more of a like mutual discovery of what's already in your mind than it is about like pulling things in from outside interesting uh it's kind of an interesting, interesting idea way to th- yeah yeah it's i think we think of it as kind of ridiculous now but it is kind of a i cool can see thing. things like physics being like that 
Because like I remember when we were learning physics. Well, man, like physics today. Well, no, I mean, if you think of relativity. And no, stuff, I'm not talking about that. More like <laughs> okay. just like general motion. Oh, and yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just like the very basic physics, like what you take in high school. Yes and no, because I mean, motion the way we do it in our heads, we're not calculating like parabolic arcs to catch a ball. Right. We're just like true. following it with our eyes. Yeah. Right. But like an arc is, you know, a ball travels like that. Yeah. Because you've seen a ball thrown, right? So you're like, okay, that seems to be like the right motion. So we know gravity exists. Like, well, I guess maybe they didn't think about it as gravity. No, stones have a downward. Stones tendency. have a downward. That's true, actually. Yeah. So I'm basing it off of knowledge that we take for granted. Right. Yeah. So that's actually. That's definitely a bias that I'm bringing to it. So yeah. it might not have been as ridiculous in their time as I'm making it seem. Well, and I mean, Aristotle's physics and everything is just absurd. Yeah. It's it's so ridiculous. Like, <laughs> What was it? Well, I mean, so one that, you know, there's this downward nature and upward yeah. nature. Um, they're like his he was very he had like an elemental chemistry where it's everything is like earth, air, fire, water type stuff. I. I think he classified the animals into some like strange system, but he did invent classification, right? Which eventually leads to, you know, periodic table and yep. all of that down the line. But there was just a lot of stuff he I guess thought. The upward and downward nature isn't as ridiculous. It's kind of based on density versus of air. Yeah. So if something is less dense than air, then well, it, it would have an upward nature. But he was saying that everything has a nature and it is happy when it is fulfilling <laughs> that nature right and and this is where it so gets, he's attaching emotions to these things as basically well. yeah. i mean not like happy the way we no, think, I but know, like but the eudaimonia like, yes. like flourishing right a flourishing rock is one that's on the ground right that's where it wants to be right a flourishing horse is one carrying you into battle right oh, okay, but then he's also yeah. got all this stuff that's like i was gonna say for chemistry we always talk about that for like like atoms are a quote like you don't even say you wouldn't say happy yeah but when they've like filled the orbital is oh, when like yeah. uh, when the electrons have filled the orbital is like the is like a stable state right uh, for the atom to be in and then when it has like an extra one it's an excited or you know there's like like you wouldn't call it happy but I could see you use that word and it's not like as ridiculous yeah. but only in certain contexts I guess for like a stone resting on a ground that actually makes some sense it's like stable it's stable it's sort of yeah stable, stable state yeah, basically stable like state. ground state or something. But I wouldn't use happy, but I guess I can see where he's coming from yeah. there. But I wouldn't call a horse happy going into battle. No. Well, and that's the thing is that he applies this to pretty much everything that is not fire going upwards. Well, no, I was going to say he applies it to like all people too, right? So it's, it's I don't know if it's here, if it's somewhere else where he basically says like a slave is, you know, fulfilled when they are like obeying their master and not being whipped, right? Like they're not you're probably happier than when you're being whipped. Yeah, exactly. Well, but he also says that <laughs> slaves can't experience happiness. Uh, right, because they're not like really people. people basically, mm. he says that about women and children too. Yeah, he's he basically says that like the only people who can experience happiness are like men who are in the like the Senate. Are they still right? teaching Aristotle in college? <laughs> they probably leave that part. Out. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you can see how some of this stuff is like a little ridiculous. Um, but then book seven is like incontinence. So you know, people who know the right thing but then don't do it mm. right and that's sort of being incontinent it's yeah. you're aware of the right action but you are not following not following it, it. yeah right? and so why do people do that um which we've all done as well yeah you're like oh i shouldn't be eating that yeah <laughs> and then you're like but oh, it tastes so good it tastes so good <laughs> i had a beer i have to have it <laughs> uh so there's one part here in the incontinence section that i think is just really funny yeah because he says uh, some maintain, on the contrary, that we are happy when we are broken on the wheel or fall into terrible misfortunes, provided that we are good. 
whether they mean to or not, these people are talking nonsense. <laughs> He's basically shitting on early versions of stoicism. Right. Right. Because it's like a very stoic idea that, oh, even if you're in the most abject poverty, uh, as long as you are, you know, virtuous and not letting yourself be bothered by it, you can still be happy. Yeah. And Aristotle's like, that is ridiculous, right? You, if you, if your whole family dies and you're stranded on an island with nothing, like you're not happy. <laughs> right. like, your life sucks. Right. And you're just being it's also stab at like Buddhism, which are, is obviously related in some ways yeah. to stoicism. And to be clear, stoicism wasn't a thing yet. Right. It comes up about 50 to 100 years after Aristotle's writing this. He has a similar writing style to uh, or I guess Seneca has a similar writing style to Aristotle. Yeah, it seems obviously the ideas are, are pretty different. But yeah. yeah, there's some similarity. I can't tell if that's translation. It could be. Yeah. Or also just like translated from ancient Greek. Right. right. Fairly limited language, I imagine. Yeah. But Zeno, who is sort of the founding Stoic, was born 50 years after Aristotle. Hmm. So they were close. They could have overlapped. So Zeno was Greek then, right? I believe so. So yes. Stoicism is a Greek school. It's not a, really a Roman school. Old Stoicism is. Yeah. yeah. But I guess the- this is like two eras. Yeah. And then I guess yeah. it was popularized for us in the Roman era. Correct. With Marcus Aurelius and, and Seneca. Seneca. Yeah. And uh, third guy, Anchoridion. Oh, um, Epictetus. Epictetus. Yeah. yeah. He was also... Uh, I think he was Roman, too. Yeah. Because he was originally a Roman slave. Right. Yeah, from one of the wars. So then book eight gets into friendship. Th- this is another kind of category one. <laughs> well, no, it's, <laughs> I, I didn't highlight it, but there is a section in there where he basically says that like only like landowning men can be friends. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like every, every other affiliation is basically just like animal pleasure. Yeah. Right. So it's, I don't know. It's just weird reading that stuff. now. <laughs> I wonder what, um, why that seems to be a theme throughout like history, like landowning seemed to be like a proxy for something else. Yeah. That like, we probably use another proxy for like, cause that was like for voting too, was like, you have to be a landowning. Uh, that part right. makes some more sense because you could say that's your skin in the game. That you care about the society. Yeah. Or yeah. that you have state, like a stake in how it goes because you own land. Mm-hmm. But it seemed like landowning was like a proxy for all sorts of stuff, like intelligent, good breeding, like just seemed like they were using landowning as the fill in. Oh, we, I mean, we still have those proxies. Yeah. Which I'm like trying to figure out what is the. Like, I would say today we somewhat use, like, college education. Yeah, I would, I would say college education, job, yep. um, city you live in, yeah, how you talk. Yeah. It's probably one. Yep. I mean, there's a lot of those proxies. We, we were, uh, Cosette and I were talking about this, that table manners mm. is actually a really that if you don't have good proxy. Or not, it's not a good proxy, but it, it definitely is a thing as a way to discriminate against poor or non-white European people. Was it you were telling me about, about for, like, using plates and forks and knives or something. yeah like asian style of eating is so much better it's just like an infinitely superior style of dining oh you're telling me that for like the british or something right they were using like uh just like not chivalry but just yeah kind of like the idea of like etiquette etiquette yes that's the word it's like etiquette is a way to show who is of a high class and who isn't if it's not immediately obvious yeah right and I guess it's kind of like the same thing with some of the land. I guess the Asian style of eating is much more like egalitarian too. Yeah, it's like, well, it's just so communal like, yeah. and you're like picking your stuff up to eat from it, which makes right. much more sense than bending over a plate. Yeah, also better for your back probably. Yeah, better for your back. You're staying closer <laughs> together. Chopsticks are way healthier for you than forks. Yeah. Right, because with the chopsticks, you have to eat slowly. Right. You cannot just like <laughs> shovel food into your mouth. Yeah. Right. 
it's easier to like clean stuff. Yep. The, I don't know. I just, there's a lot of good. It's much better. There's a lot of good. But that's definitely a proxy. That's a proxy. Yeah. But I think we have a lot of those today. I mean, listening to made you think is a good yeah. proxy, right? It's like, are you cultured or not? If somebody listens to made you think, we'd probably be friends with them. Oh, most certainly. Yeah. Yeah. If you can stand our two hour episodes. Of, <laughs> yeah. Thanks. You probably like us. They don't listen to made you think. They <laughs> just can't hang out with us. <laughs> They're lower class. Afraid. <laughs> lower or too high? <laughs> we don't care. Definitely about lower. Yeah. Um, let's see. Book nine. More kind of on friendship stuff. And then I think book 10 is where he gets back into pleasure. And that's really the main dichotomy he needs to lay out between happiness of like a base nature yeah. and happiness of a higher nature. A higher human nature. Yeah, exactly. So book 10. Pleasure. Mm, the pleasure book. <laughs> mm. <laughs> that might make people more enticed to read yeah. this particular book of Aristotle. <laughs> Book XXX. How do you book 30? Yeah. <laughs> the Nicomachean sex. The sex six. manual. Yeah. He wrote another book to another. Son. Yeah, exactly. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the penis has a certain nature. <laughs> it wants to be. It wants to be. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Okay. So, but actually. This is the fan fiction of Aristotle. Yeah, it's the fanfic. <laughs> 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 it feels like this should be bonus material, but whatever. We'll keep it in the episode. Yeah, whatever. We'll, we'll roll with it. If you want the rest of the bonus material, uh, support us on Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> Patreon.com slash made you think. Back to the book. So yeah, this book is really, or the book 10 is entirely about kind of what pleasure is and why it is not sufficient for happiness, yeah. which kind of serves as a pre-refutation to at least uh, law utilitarianism. Right. Yeah. Where this idea that, oh, we should just maximize pleasure, minimize pain is kind of insufficient because pleasure is not a good enough metric. Right. Right. Well, and what feels good is very often the opposite sometimes of what you should be doing. Yeah. Or very often. But it's still important. Right. Yeah. He uses it as an important measure, but he's also careful to say that uh, if things are pleasant to people in bad condition, we would not suppose that they are also pleasant except to these people. Right. Right. So something that is, you know, great when you're like, you know, a thief or uh, living on the streets or, you know, with broken legs is not like a universally pleasurable thing. It's you know, to you in that situation. Well, it's kind of like what we were talking about if right after fasting or something. Yeah. Like a vegetable tastes amazing after you've been fasting <laughs> or anything tastes amazing. It's a very different experience. Yeah. Yeah. Like, whereas if you've, you know, you're accustomed to eating like great, beautiful plates of meat and then somebody gives you the exact same vegetable. You're going to be like, what is this? What is this? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to eat that. <laughs> but the problem that he's highlighting there is that... So it's relative is what he's yeah, saying. It's yeah, it's relative and we can't create an ethics based on relative judgments. We need a better sense of what is actually good. And since pleasure is so kind of, you know, subservient to your whims at the time, right. uh, it's not a great metric. Whereas, you know, like justice and courage and you know, learning and all of this stuff is fairly consistent. And we can say those are general goods. Right. Because they're going to be consistently good to different people in different situations. Yeah. So it's like more broadly applicable. Yeah, much more broadly applicable. And he goes on, you know, sticking with that to reiterate that happiness is not a state, right? He says, uh, for if it were, someone might have it and yet be asleep for his whole life, living the life of a plant or suffer the greatest misfortunes. If we do not approve of this, we count happiness as an activity rather than a state, as we said before. 
right? So human flourishing, the pseudaimonia is something you do. It is a, a way of living right. that will naturally be in flux, but that you can continue aiming towards with the right behaviors. Which I think is a, um, it's a healthy view of happiness. Yeah. Because if you, you know, like a lot of, I wouldn't say like maybe not a lot of made you think listeners think this. Also, you're drinking the wrong cup of tea. Mm. <laughs> it's fine. Sorry. No, 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 it's fine. Swap it up. <laughs> no, I was, I was done anyway. Oh, okay. So, um, no, I was, just, <laughs> I was just saying for, uh, so for happiness to be, um, like viewed as a destination is a fairly, um, disappointing way to live because there's tons of stories of when you reach whatever arbitrary destination you had, you then feel despair because there's no, you right. don't have anything you're aiming at. So I like, I like what he's talking about here where he's saying like quite literally that quote, we count happiness as an activity rather than a state. Cause I think we've all felt that too. Yeah. It's like way more about being on the path than reaching the destination. Well, and you probably have or are well beyond a number of goals that you set for yourself at some point in your life. Yeah. And you didn't hit those points and then just become magically happy forever. Right. right? It's not how it works. <laughs> right. It's this continual process. Well, it's like when you're in, when you're working in a job, you're like, oh, if I could only work for myself, that would be amazing. Right. But it's like, once you start working for yourself, that's definitely like, you can't just sit back and be yeah. like, I made it. I achieved my goal. You actually feel, you do feel like inspired in some ways, but it's because of the activity. Right. It's less that like, oh, I'm working for myself. I've reached the destination. You know, yeah, it's, uh, it, yeah, and I think you're right. Like the goals you set for yourself when you're like 18 or something, like I'm sure you've hit some, Yeah, you know, I've definitely hit some and it's definitely not a state. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it's nice to hit them, but it's mu- much more important to like keep setting more and keep being on the path. Yeah. To, and, and those don't have to be like monetary goals. It's just, no, just different goals. Something to strive for is sort of the real joy. Right. Something to strive. That's a really good way of putting it. That should be on a t-shirt. It should. <laughs> <laughs> like like for, for a run, right? It's something to strive for. Yeah, made you think t-shirts. Made you think t-shirts. There we go. Maybe part of the Patreon at some point. Yeah. <laughs> Stay subscribed for three months, get a free t-shirt. Yeah, it's not a bad deal. Yeah. There, there is this idea that like instead of trying to like pick that ideal life or think what will make you happy, right? You should decide what like shitty things you're willing to put up with, <laughs> right? I like it. So it's like I... I cannot put up with a bad boss who I would have to do what they tell me to. Yeah. But I can put up with the stress of like maybe not having an income next month. Yeah. Right. Yep. And so and to some people, they would prefer the reverse. Right. right? They're like, you know, they just think about things differently. And so it's better to know what, you know, shit you won't put up with. And I think that's unique to each individual. Yeah. Right. Which is why like a lot of the like entrepreneur porn I'm not really a fan of, Mm. right. Of like uh, your job, travel the world. Yeah. Or like even just like the um like there's definitely people who make it seem like okay you should be an entrepreneur and it's like right. you should not be an entrepreneur unless that's like really what your calling is because it does suck in yeah. a lot of different ways like there's no weekends really i mean there are weekends you can set them for yourself but if there's a fire you still gotta put it out yeah exactly right there's no like stops backup. with you yeah there's no yeah. backup so it's like yeah there's a lot of like entrepreneur porn out there of like look at this lifestyle it's so cool well i think half of it is I mean, literally like porn, especially the no bad stuff, especially like porn for people who, you know, are at a job that they don't like. Yeah, they're probably never going to do anything about it. Right. But they like fantasizing about it. That's a great that's a great caveat. Right. Like, yeah, you feel like you're doing something by reading this stuff and, you know, following these people on Instagram. But you're not going to do anything about it. I'm not right. seeing anybody listening to this podcast. I mean, maybe somebody listening, but I, I think that is part of why that stuff is popular. Yeah. Cause it does right? seem to get really popular and I've never really been sure why. Yeah. Nice. It's probably just the fantasizing. It's actually, yeah. It's Honestly, it's probably why like some other like types of media or like magazines and stuff have gotten popular. It's just like, 
you know, especially ones with like cool pictures and stuff. It's right. a bunch of the travel Instagram accounts are probably similar, right? It's like people looking at them, getting inspired, but not probably ever going to go to those places. Maybe they will. Maybe. Yeah. But yeah, but there's a lot of like, I mean, those travel Instagram accounts are so popular too. Yeah. But it's like, all right, probably not. Probably this people many people are, are going to fall going. through. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you know what? Maybe that's the activity that keeps people happy. It's yeah, like the fantasizing, the fantasizing. Part. Yeah, right. Maybe it's like a similar yeah. thing of watching the TV. It's like I'm stuck in this shitty cubicle, but I can imagine all these cool places. Yeah, right. And then like maybe someday I'll be able to do it. Right. So it's almost having that goal out there is gives you something to strive gives for. You something. Yeah. yeah, maybe it's fair. Yeah, it's not so bad. But yeah, I think there's not honestly too much else new in this last section. Uh, it's really just reiterating that it's this active informed striving towards being virtuous and that it's this constant refinement of your person around the different virtues, right? And realizing where you are deficient, acting to improve that, continuing to live out this virtuous life. Yeah. Uh, Which is, I think, where Aristotle's ethics get hard to follow sometimes because it's not, I mean, something nice about, you know, Kantian uh, deontology, right, is... Like, okay, you know, act in such a way that you could will it to be a universal law, mm. right? Only do something if you'd be okay with every other person in that same situation doing the same thing. To you. Very also. easy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to you, right? Very easy rule to use in like every ethical situation. It's kind of like a golden rule kind of thing. Yeah. And what's the Taleb distinction? Or I think he talked about it. I don't know if he made the distinction. The silver rule, which was, it was like the negative version of uh, the platinum rule. rule. Platinum rule. Yeah. Yeah. Which is uh, the opposite, right? It's like, or not the opposite, but like the inverse. The golden rule is like, do to others as you would have, have them do, do unto you. you. And then I think it's like, don't do unto others what, what you, you wouldn't, wouldn't have, have them do, do to, to you. you. Yeah. Something yeah, like that. Something like that. There's like the, it's, I don't know if it's an inverse, but it's definitely a related. Yeah. Rule. There's some variation of yeah. it. Yeah. And I think that is a pretty attractive philosophy. Mm hmm. Right, because it's like, okay, yeah, I probably shouldn't do this thing to that person. Because- yeah, it's like a very simple, pithy rule to follow. Whereas yeah. this virtue ethics is honestly kind of hard to follow. Right, right. Well, it's, it's also not really prescribing anything. It's kind of yeah. like you got to figure it out and figure it out. why. Right, and it's it's less sexy for sure. Yeah, but it, it, there is a definitely kernel of truth to this, which is why it's endured probably all these. Years. Oh yeah, Lindy, Lindy. Yep. <laughs> um, but then again, you also see the kind of like postmodernist argument against it, which right. is that, you know, who are you to say what's virtuous? Right. Right. And I think there would also be the argument that certain ideas of virtue are very... I would like, say he brings that up, though. Yeah, he does. In some ways. I mean, not like as to the same extent as postmodernists would bring it up, of course. But I think Aristotle would say, like, no, there is a right amount of... I, let's use a simple example. There is a right amount of, like health right or there's a right amount of eating yeah and then you've got some people who say like oh no right like uh what is it like big is beautiful right and it's like okay i see that you know like you can be attracted to people who are overweight but that doesn't mean it's healthy right right and there's some people who say like oh there's no there's nothing bad about being overweight right and it's like well that's like objectively not true. it's objectively not true right but it's it's a very like oh who are you to say that this is bad right Because you could say, oh, if this person wants to be unhealthy, then it's not bad for them. It's yeah. Like, yeah. And Aristotle would say, like, no, it's still bad. <laughs> he does actually say you're just, that. You're just wrong. He does say that actually exactly here where he says, uh, yeah, here it is. But happiness will need external prosperity also since we are human beings for our nature is not self-sufficient for study, but we need a healthy body and need to have food and the other services provided. Yeah. It's kind of like, and still, even though no one can be blessedly happy without external goods. 
So it's like, yeah, definitely referring to like, you need a healthy body to be on what he's calling happy. Well, but I also just mean more in general, right? Like just because you have a different idea of what is good doesn't mean that you are right. Yeah. Right. And I think Aristotle is arguing that there is some universal, you know, appropriate mean for all of these virtues and that you have to figure them out and that you can be wrong about them. Right. Whereas the more like postmodernist slant would be like, no, if you think that, you know, it's healthy to be like overweight, then, you know, no one can really tell you you're wrong. Right. Which is like, it just doesn't feel right. Yeah, it doesn't feel right. I find I find the Aristotelian view much more appealing. Yeah, I I can see where it can be bad for the same reason we talked about earlier. Right. Right. Where if you say that, oh, if you don't know table manners, like you're uncultured. Right. Right. (laughs) But I think that's different. Right. That feels like. You know, or or if you, you know, speak in, you know, with a Southern accent, then you sound dumb. Right. Right. And, and a British accent sounds smart or sounds something smart, like that. Right. Yeah. And those can be like true and wrong. Yeah. Right. Like it can be true that to some people, if you speak with a Southern accent, you sound dumb. But that doesn't mean that if you speak with a Southern accent, you then are you are dumb. dumb yeah. Right. Like, yeah, those are two can, different. Things. Yeah, they're two yeah. different things. So I think that's where it can get kind of tricky with the interpretation of some of the stuff he's saying. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's definitely stuff wrong with what he talks about, of course, but it feels more like directionally right than yeah. the postmodernist. Well, yeah, and I find it actually more compelling than most philosophical yeah. systems. Yeah. Because it's it's very simple. Yeah, right. Right. And it, it fits our intuitions, I think. And it also does leave some room for personal preference. Like it's right. not so much like uh, religion in the sense that we're prescribing these commandments or things. Yeah. It's more, yes, there is a good, but you kind of have to discover it. Here's sort of like the boundaries. Well, and there's good within a range. Yes, right? it's a range. Yeah, like, that's don't true. Yeah. be a couch potato, but you don't have to, you know, compete in marathons, right. right? Yeah. You should be able to, like, you know, pick up at least your body weight off the ground, right? right? And yep. go for a few miles of runs, right? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, yep. And, you know, if you can do marathons, that's awesome, too. Right. But if you're also training so much that you're constantly getting injured right. and, and that's also like, not good. Yeah, you know, crazy skinny and all that, like, that's not good either, right? right. You, you've got a range of mean. Uh, in the middle that is acceptable and you just have to find where in that range is appropriate for you. Yeah. But you still need to be in the range. It's almost like an enlightened view of like, you should be good at these things. You should be good enough. You should be within yeah. the range. It's like very Renaissance. Renaissance. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like you shouldn't be so deficient in one area that you are just completely. And you shouldn't be over-specialized. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yep. He, he says earlier in the book that the person who knows best what is virtuous is one who knows the most about everything. Right. Right. Like you don't want to be overly specialized in one area. Yeah. And for that, Meiji think is pretty useful. It is. It is great for that. As are the books that we write. As are the books. All right. Should we wrap up there? Yeah. I think that's that's covers. Yeah. This is nice. This More. is a good one to check out. I think. Uh, yeah. Read book one and book 10. Yeah. And if you want to read books two through nine, you can. But yeah, you can at least do book one and ten. It won't take you too long. They're not too long. No. Um, also, if you just want to skip that, if you support us on Patreon, you can get our book notes. Right. And then you can just read through all our highlights. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. It is. Actually, that'd be much faster than having to go out and buy the book. And actually, I mean, for the price of the book, you would get, you know, two to three months right. of access to us on Patreon. So it's, it's kind of a no-brainer. It's kind of a no-brainer. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, you also get to kind of hang out with us in there and comment and talk about each episode. Yep. Tell us what you liked, where, where we were wrong recommend books where we were right where we were right yeah if you have other recommended reading yeah you know people drop in can drop in recommended reading there for each other as well as us 
which gives it kind of a cool community. Exactly. And I'm sure there's people who know more than us about every single thing we've ever talked about yeah. on this show. So, oh, yeah. so and, uh, you're like skimming the surface. And you are probably one of those people if you're listening. So you should join the Patreon and tell us. You should. There. And you can do that at patreon.com slash made you think. All one word, all lowercase. No dashes, no spaces. No dashes, no spaces. You can also find us on Twitter. Twitter, yep. So I'm at the rail Neil S. I'm at Nat Eliason. Not Nate Eliason. Although if it gets you to my Twitter, it's yeah. fine. You know. <laughs> the best is that there are people who send emails to us yeah. on the off the newsletter and they'll say, Hi Neil and Nate, L O L J K. Oh, they, yeah. <laughs> they know because they know it pisses you off. So <laughs> I do get that sometimes to my personal email too. Yeah. And I'm just like, it's not. It's, it's funny, like haha. But you're not the first person to make this joke. To them, it's their first time making the joke, right? But to you, it's, yeah, exactly. To me, like this happens every month or two. <laughs> I find it funny, yeah, so it's, it's okay. You're making me laugh. You're making me happy. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess you can also subscribe to the email list. Yeah, which is where you'll find out about cool new announcements, uh, upcoming books. Right? They'll still be there? I don't know. We have to decide. Are we what deprecating we still... the email list? Eh, still go sign up because we don't know. You don't know what's going to be there. We'll just, yeah, we'll just send you an email every month telling you what you're missing by not being on the Patreon. <laughs> there might be stuff in there. We'll definitely let you know about like some events and different things like yeah. that. And hey, there might be new bonuses for the Patreon that we'll announce there. That's true. So at yeah. least, yeah, at least check out the newsletter. If not the Patreon, just check out the newsletter. The bonus material is definitely moving to the bonus Patreon. materials. Yeah, that's all Patreon. So if you like our our ramblings and off topics, and we're cover we're creating intra episode bonus material too. That's true. We've been doing that recently. So yeah. yeah, up to now the bonus material. So for people who aren't subscribed to the email list, don't know why, but if you have not been subscribed there, what we've typically done is we give the upcoming episodes, and then for the most recent episodes, we share the bonus material. So from now on, the bonus material is for sure going under the Patreon. We may still keep announcing the books. We'll see how what we end up doing with that. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Yeah. But yeah, that's typically what we've used the email list for. And then we've also done announcements for other things related to podcast, like new sponsors. Yeah, but definitely bonus material and notes will go yeah. in the Patreon. Yeah, so. for sure. Cool. I think... Yeah, I think that, that just I, about does it. This will give a couple sponsor shout outs to oh, Cup and Leaf. Oh, we should also, uh, if you haven't left us a review oh, on yes, iTunes. That's for sure. Yeah. If you could do that, that would be wonderful. There have been a lot of kind people who have yeah, but left us it, some nice words. But it helps us. Helps uh, us. Helps us get you know possible future guests on the right. show. And the recommended is really useful too. Yeah. Helps us show up more in recommended podcasts and stuff on iTunes and elsewhere. Uh, so yeah, if you have a second to just leave a nice little five-star review it can be as simple as oh net and neil are great uh you should listen to this podcast right you can use that exact copy so if you're not sure what to write because like, exactly i know yeah. there's a lot of people who hear that they're like oh i should leave a review sometime then like oh, i don't know what to write right so you can just write love this podcast net and neil are super fun right not gonna lie i've done that with other podcasts where i'm like i really should leave a review and yeah yeah and never get around to just it just give right? them the copy for it yeah you exactly. have like a review generator on the site in fact you know what we'll we'll pause for like 20 seconds here you can open up your app uh leave the review and come back all right ready go <laughs> should play like jeopardy music yeah we need like some music to play too. andres you should add that if we can we can have rights <laughs> to jeopardy music probably not jeopardy music we're gonna get sued yeah we have to cut ourselves off just that long all right have they had long enough all right. I hope they left a review. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah. So aside from that, uh, we've got all of our lovely um, show affiliates who you can check out too. So made you think podcast.com slash support to get all the links. Well, I'll start shouting out the delicious tea that we were Ooh, just drinking. Yes. So if you want some of this delicious Lapsang Suchong, uh, it's a smoky black tea. Yeah. It's like a whiskey tea. Yeah. It's really 
interesting flavor. Like a nice scotch almost, but yeah. it's a tea. So tea. it lets you indulge without indulging. Aristotle would be proud. He would. <laughs> uh, so you can go, you can get that at cupandleaf.com slash think, right? Yep. Or just code think or either. You can do either, right? So it's cupandleaf.com slash think will take you to the store with coupon code applied. Yeah. Right. And then you'll get 20% off your first order. Perfect. So you so. should definitely go do that and order a whole bunch of other stuff besides just the Lapsang Suchong. I think what was the, the milk oolong was really good. Cream Earl Grey. Cream Earl Grey. Yeah. There's also some some uh, starter packs, right? Or like some Yeah, some, some bundles. So we've got like a top eight and a top four bundle. We've got a black tea bundle, which has the cream roll gray and the lapsong, as well as English breakfast and a three-year pu'er. That sounds really good. It's really good. Um, we've got a few other pu'ers if you're interested in trying um, that kind of tea, which is like, it's just kind of a cool flavor. It's very earthy. Mm. It's fermented. It's super good for you. We've got a three-year, a like an, uh, premium four-year, and then I've also got a French vanilla one. Hmm. So it's got like French vanilla in with the pu'er, which Ooh, is pretty that good. sounds really good. Yeah. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, Genmai Cha is another good one if you're looking for a green tea. It's like green tea with uh, popped brown rice. Hmm. Oh, I've tried that before. Actually, it's really good. Yeah, it's it's really tasty. So you can check all those out if you would like some tangent fuel from our mm. friends at uh, foursigmatic.com/think. They'll give you, I think, 15% off your order. They have a bunch of good stuff. Yeah, a bunch of good stuff. We'd recommend the mushroom coffee. Oh, did you get the lemonade? Yeah, the lemonade. It's so good. Oh, next time. I got to make you some. Yeah, yeah. Next time time I'll get you some. Especially with summer. Yeah, it's delicious. The lemonade's amazing and it's jet black, which is pretty cool. So oh, it's activated charcoal, right? Activated then, charcoal. Yeah. So yeah. it pulls all the toxins out of your system. Yeah, which I know you're you love hearing that. Yeah. yeah. I was like, mm, I don't know what that means, but still it's good. It's good for you. At the very least, it's got chaga in it. Yeah. And activated charcoal does seem to have some benefits for digestion in particular. Okay. So if you have it after a meal, it could be really good. Good for you. Yeah. And then well, I mean, I love the uh what's the other one I had recently? The chai latte. Chai, yeah. The chai latte is really good. Yeah. So that one's got like some coconut, coconut milk, I think, yeah. in there, like powdered coconut milk. Yeah, I think coconut powdered coconut milk, some turkey tail, and some reishi. Yeah. So good mushroom blend there. It's a really good like relaxing eating one. And it has a bit of sweetness. I think there's like a tiny bit of like palm sugar or something. Yeah. But it was not much. It's not overly sweet. It's really tasty. But it's delicious. Yeah. And you don't need to add anything to it because it's got the coconut milk. Yeah. Already. So you don't need to like add any cream or anything like that. Delicious. Obviously, our favorite mushroom coffee, regular mushroom coffee, Think Blend. Think Blend. Mm. So good. Uh, then there's the adaptogen blend that we've also had. Yeah, we've had that too. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Definitely go to foursigmatic.com slash think. I, I'm a regular user of those yeah, products. So they're the great. 30, I get the 30 serving coffee tin every two weeks. Yeah. So I go through it like a fiend. It's so yeah. good. But yeah, aside from them, we got Perfect Keto. Ooh, so yeah, we got to say the nut butter. Yes. Uh, if you were I not. some for my dad. Oh, dude, it's amazing. <laughs> it's so good. If, even if you were not remotely interested in ketosis, go to perfectketo.com slash think, order the nut butter. If you like right. the taste of frosting, it's a great one. Like it has a texture of frosting. Texture of frosting, That's but it mean. tastes like an amazing peanut it butter. Tastes, it exactly, tastes like the yes. best peanut butter you've ever had in your life. And it's not overly like nutty. No, and it's not too sweet. It's yeah. super smooth and just like surprisingly flavorful. Right, great like salt, a little vanilla, cashew, and uh, maybe that's why I brought up the frosting thing. It's got that vanilla y type because like, there's vanilla bean in there. Yeah, it's got a little vanilla, a tiny bit. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it really tastes like just an amazing nut butter. Yeah. And you said keep it in the fridge. Keep it in the fridge. Yeah. If you keep it at room temperature, it gets a little watery. Yeah. Uh, which they're working on. They're going to have V2 coming out soon. But V1, keep it in the fridge. Delicious. So good. So perfectketo.com slash think. Yep, yep. You'll get 20% off, I believe. And then last but not least, Kettle and Fire. 
kettleonfire.com slash think. Uh, they've got their mushroom chicken blend on their site. Yep. So I've checked that out. That's my favorite to drink by far. I love that. I've been running through that. That's oh, all so good. Oh, so good. Yeah. <laughs> I actually texted Justin a picture the other day of uh, I was buying it at Whole Foods and he, he texted me about something. And then I responded with just a picture of the <laughs> thing. I'm like, look what I'm holding right now. Nice. <laughs> he appreciated it. Uh, it. It's so good. How could he not? It is. It's really good. So. But you should actually buy it from their website. I yeah, get it from make, their site. I think they actually make more money off the site or something too. Yeah, they do. They make more money off the site and you can get it for less. You don't need to give it to any money to Amazon for that. No, they're, Amazon's doing fine. Get it directly from Forcingmatic. From Kettle and Fire. Or, sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you can sorry. use code THINK and you'll get up to... 28% off your order. I yeah. Mean. And if you really like it and you already know you like it, you should just subscribe. They have a subscription you can you can get on there. And, and then you save even more. Yeah. So. It's free shipping also. Free shipping too. Yeah. Which is big. Yep. But yeah. And then last but not least, if you go to majorthinkpodcast.com slash support, uh, there's a link through to Amazon. Click through on that. We get about 4 to 5% of anything you spend on Amazon, which is awesome. Buy some books. Buy some podcasting equipment. Yeah. Buy anything you could want. Computer stuff. Photography equipment. Yeah. Space shuttle. Space shuttle. <laughs> anything. iPads. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it doesn't cost you anything else. Just helps support the show. Yeah. They don't charge you more. They don't charge you more. Yeah. But um, all right. I think, I think that's it. I think we did it. Yeah. All right. Check us out on Patreon one last time. Patreon.com slash made you think. And we will see you all next week. See ya. Cheers.